Galatians 4 for the, maybe the last time for a while. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. Rehashing a few things. So 15 years ago, tonight, you guys did the right thing. Joe and Irene, they came on a motorcycle, came up to the farm, took about five minutes for a marriage ceremony, right? And they got on their bike and drove off. (laughs) And here they are, still married 15 years later. Let's, uh, congratulations. Yeah, it's all, I know, it's all Irene. Yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah. Patience, be patient. That's the sixth precept. Okay. Let's take a couple moments. Thank you, Father, for another opportunity to gather in the name of your Son. And we are grateful for the engrafted word, which we're about to receive with meekness and with courtesy toward others. We know that it will have its effect, which is the saving of the soul. And we're grateful for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get started, I want to do a little bit of an intro on what I would call a tale of two pastors. Because I think I was just driving around the other day and a memory struck me with some pretty strong, well, it hit me like a locomotive. It was many years ago and I was in my 20s and I was just feeling what it meant to be called by God to do what I've been doing now for the past nearly 40 years. And I was going through a terrible struggle And I guess you could call it down, but not quite out. And I remember being staying in a hotel here in a motel there, just really way down because of the uncertainty, because the church I was affiliated then with was kind of falling apart and everyone was scattering. And so two pastors came into my path, and I remember them as clear. I even remember their name. I'm not going to give one name. I'm going to give the other name. The first name, the first pastor, told me that he wanted me to come to his church and that we would pray. They had an altar, and we prayed like just like this on the stairs. And then he said he's pretty sure he'd get a, a word from the Lord for me. And at the end of the prayer... He said, two things. Not only are you not called to be a pastor, you're not called by God at all. You're not saved. I said, well, I don't know how you figure that out. But that, that made the burden be like ten times heavier. But then there was another pastor who just visited me because a friend knew him. And his name was Bob Brindle, and he was a pastor of a Baptist church in Burlington, Vermont, way up north in Vermont. And I remember the one word he said to me after a a meeting together. He said, God is going to do a work of grace in your life. And I'll never forget that. That 
is one of those words that's spoken in due season. It might as well have been the Lord himself speaking through Pastor Bob Brindle because that, I still remember that, that one sentence, God is going to do a work of grace in your life. And that is exactly what he has done and is continuing to do. In fact, the entire gospel that we're studying, the gospel according to Paul, Paul's gospel, which is really the gospel of God about his son, is all about a work of grace that God has enacted in Christ, that Christ has enacted in God. The righteousness of God is defined by the scripture, especially in Psalm 98, where Paul heard an echo and wrote it down in Romans 117, the righteousness of God is being apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. That righteousness, according to Psalm 98, is the act of God, a gracious act of God on behalf of his people, which we know from Paul is on behalf of not only all people, but all of creation. There's a cosmic dimension to the saving work of God in Christ. The work of grace that God has done in my life and has done in your lives and will continue to do in your lives. And you can be assured that if you're in a difficulty now that he will enact a work of grace to pull you through it and to elevate you in his own due time. Just humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due season for he gives more grace to the humble. And he does it all the time. But that work of grace is, it it began to relate to me that it wasn't just done in my life or other people's lives or individually. That's what God has done in Christ for all of creation. And so tonight I want to consider several things in Galatians 4. I want to just rehash some of the things we've been over. And that means repeat with some expansion. That seems to be an effective tool in your comprehension and in your understanding and mine. Galatians 4, 1. Now what I'm saying, Paul says, is that the whole time that the heir is a minor, he is no different from a slave, even though in prospect he is the Lord of all. Now we've been over this many times, but this phrase, he is the Lord of all, I believe is an oblique but potent reference to the lordship of Jesus Christ over all. The word for all there is the same word that is the last word in the book of Revelation that we made quite a bit of hay from, and that's Pantone, Lord of all. Of course, he's referring, analogously, he's describing an heir over an entire estate who under one period of time is a minor and therefore only has the same status as the slaves of the household who are custodians over this young man, confining custodians. And then that's balanced against the time when he comes of age and is no longer a minor and he becomes a son in the sense that he becomes the heir of the whole estate. Now, 
In this, he is Lord of all. I think we have an oblique but potent reference to the lordship of Jesus Christ over all. And that's extremely important. Even though this is analogously describing an heir over an entire estate, it's probably Paul gesturing toward Jesus Christ as Lord of all. And I gave two reasons for this. The first, Paul's radical Christocentricity. Paul is radically Christocentric. His soteriology or his salvation, his theology of salvation is entirely and integrally based in Christology, Christ himself and his faithfulness as we know. The second reason for that is what we'll see again in Galatians 4, 7, the singular word, son, the key word. And of course, we're learning that in Galatians 4, 4, we have the first of two divine missions because Paul's gospel is an announcement of a divine invasion into the present evil age with a rescue mission in mind. But that rescue mission takes place under two divine missions. The first is the sending forth of God's Son by the Father. The second is the sending forth of God's Spirit by the Father and the Son who takes up residence in our hearts and who cries out, Abba, dear Father. So the word son is key. In Galatians 4, 5, we know that the reason for the sending of the son is to redeem us from being under the law. And that us there we've shown is the whole of humanity, not just a few people in Galatia, not just that which is called the church, which is really just a proleptic community or a foretaste of a universal community of redeemed people, but all. And we correlated this with John 3.17. The first introduction we had to divine missions was several years ago in the Gospel of John, the fourth G. We called it the fourth gospel. In John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. If you correlate John 3.17, the world being saved, with the meaning of us, in Galatians 4, being redeemed from the law, you have the universality of this gospel. We've seen in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8 that when the gospel was preached in advance by the scripture personified to Abraham, that that announcement, that gospel, was an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. For he said, in your seed, to Abraham, Yahweh said, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations is another moniker or way of saying all of humankind. Now again, this little phrase, I don't want to leave it alone. He is Lord of all. Refers ultimately to Jesus Christ. And it has profound salvific implications or soteriological implications. Jesus is Lord is an acclamation, a spoken acclamation that can only be made in the Holy Spirit. No man can say, no woman can say, Jesus is Lord. That is, with the sincerity of faith. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3. Now, that's important 
when we realize that Jesus is Lord is going to be the announcement of every tongue, whether under the earth, above the earth, on the earth, or in heaven. And it will ultimately be, and is already happening, you have already said this, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So that Jesus is Lord over all has profound saving implications. Because Jesus is Lord is an acclamation that can only be made in the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father. Philippians 2.11 also. Jesus is Lord is the essence of the acclaiming confession of every tongue in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Though in Philippians 2.9 and following, the universal acclamation is literally the Lord. That's kurios, which takes the place of the Old Testament Yahweh, the God of Israel, the I am that I am. Kurios, when speaking of Jesus Christ, is a substitute for Yahweh. So the acclamation, the confession, the public announcement will be that literally the Lord, Kurios, Yahweh is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus. That he is Lord of all means that God the Father has granted to him all things. God loved the world so much that he gave the world his son. God loved his son so much that he gave his son the world. And that includes all flesh. Where in John 17, 2, Jesus said that the Father gave to him authority over all flesh. In fact, it says, literally, you have granted him authority over all flesh in order that to all whom you have given him, he would give the life of the endless age or eternal life, we could say. Please note again in John 17, 2, and you can read it carefully. Read it in as many translations as you want. Read it in the Greek text if you want. You have granted him, that's Father, Jesus speaking to the Father. The him is the third person reference to himself. You have granted him, Jesus Christ, authority over all flesh. In order that to all whom you have given him, he would give the life of the coming age. All whom God the Father gave to him is given the life of the coming age. All that the Father has given to him is all flesh. This shows the universality of the first divine mission, the mission of the Son. The divine mission of the Spirit is also universal, for the Scripture says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This is the Spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4.13, the Spirit of that ignites faith. The spirit who ignites faith and who inspires the confession, Jesus is Lord, will do so in all flesh, in all human beings. Now, that he is Lord of all, puts to flight the whole idea that preachers try to make their congregations do. Make Jesus Lord of your life. You can't, God has already made Jesus Lord in Acts 2.36. Our whole job is to make ourselves his servants, the servants of the Lord. 
And that's why Paul, that's why Peter, that's why Timothy, that's why others were known and knew themselves as the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, slave doesn't mean slavish, servile, groveling. It means people of implicit obedience, availability to do whatever the Lord commands. Because being under the lordship of Christ is the experience of the kingdom of God in this time. So then, though there are many who are called lords in this world, Paul makes a very clear point of that in 1 Corinthians 8, there are, there are many who are called lord in this world. There are lords in this world. There are many called gods in this world. But though there are many who are called lords in this world, Jesus is the Lord of lords. He is distinguished from all other lords by the cross on which he became the crucified. And he is distinguished from all other lords by his resurrection, by which he became the firstborn from the dead. Paul announces that he both died and rose again, that he would be Lord of both the living and the dead. Romans 14, 9. He both died and arose from the dead, that he might become the Lord of the living and the dead, the dead and the living. That's one of the meanings of he is Lord of all. But Paul goes even farther than that. He goes farther. He, because Jesus is Lord over the living and the dead, then he says, relevant to this is the statement from Yahweh himself in Isaiah 45, 43, 25. Every knee will bow to me, says Yahweh, the Lord. And every tongue will give praise to God. And so the acknowledgement, once again, of every tongue that Jesus is Lord is not a forced or coerced confession as is often put forward by preachers that want to talk about after people acknowledge Jesus to be Lord, they're cast into an eternal lake of fire, which, of course, is a betrayal of biblical interpretation of the notion of apocalyptic, which present-day people cannot seem to handle, including theologians and including Christians. They, seem, they don't seem to be able to handle Paul's apocalypticism and the apocalyptic of the Bible. Apocalypticism means that God has revealed his saving righteousness in Jesus Christ in a cosmic way, in a dimension that takes all humanity in and all of creation for that matter, as we're going to see in Romans 8, 19 to 23. I think I'm getting geared up to get into Romans 8 a little bit with you fairly soon. Because Jesus is Lord over the living and the dead. And because every knee will bow to me, says Yahweh, Yeshua. And every tongue will give praise to God in Romans fourteen eleven. And what is more in Philippians 2, 10 to 11, every knee includes those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And so, both the living and the dead. Again, Jesus is distinguished from all other lords by the cross on which he became the crucified one and by his resurrection from the dead 
by which he became the firstborn of many brothers, many arguably equaling all of humankind ultimately. Romans 8.29, Hebrews 2.9 to 13, Mark 10.45, 1 Timothy 2.6, 1 Corinthians 15.22, 2 Corinthians 5.14, but you know all those. The act of God in Christ, the work of grace that God has done, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now listen carefully because this gets down to where we live. And this gets down to the idea of true discipleship. We haven't mentioned that word very often lately, but it will be a main feature. Jesus, as Jesus is distinguished from all other lords by the cross, similarly, disciples of Jesus are distinguished from followers of religion or religious leaders. By the law of the cross. It is the law of the cross that also protects us from a radical realized eschatology. A radical realized eschatology is what the Corinthians were experiencing. They're called enthusiasts. Today there are various stripes, whether charismatic or Pentecostal. And I'm not against those people at all. But sometimes in that place you have a radical realized eschatology as if we're already bodily raised, etc. As Ernst Kosman rightly observed in his Romans commentary, quote, only Christ is exalted. Disciples are still stigmatized by his cross and must occupy the place which he has left. Paul agrees heartily. He says we are here in Christ's stead. So the trajectory that we participate in with Christ in this life, and we've seen this many times, and it's mainly from Douglas Campbell's book, The Deliverance of God, in which he shows that God has grafted us on to the double trajectory of Christ. That is the downward trajectory. Jesus comes down from heaven. No man has ever ascended to heaven except the Son of Man who first descended And that same son of man was lifted up on a cross, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the son of man is lifted up. The result of Moses lifting up a serpent is every eye looking and healing. The result of Christ being lifted up is every eye looking and salvation. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, he says in Isaiah 45, 22. We are grafted on to the downward trajectory of Christ, and that ends up in the cross. And then burial, entombment, as we could call it, resurrection, and ascension, and enthronement. And that's where we see him in Revelation, enthroned, the lamb enthroned. What we're going to have in terms of experience in this life in which we inhabit these mortal human bodies of flesh, our experience is much more of that downward trajectory. We carry about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. 
This is far from a radically realized eschatology. This is showing that the law of the cross operates in the life of the disciple. Unless someone takes up his cross and follows me, he's not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus was speaking that with a view to the law of the cross. So again, disciples of Jesus are distinguished from followers of religion, including the Christian religion, or of religious leaders by the law of the cross. So the trajectory that we participate with in with Christ in this life, in our earthly experience, is primarily that of the downward trajectory, though at the same time, we participate in an expectancy of glory, of our glorious eschatological liberty, the glorious freedom of the sons of God. Beyond that, we do have some experiential participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I say some, and I mean not all. The reason for that is, there are two reasons for this. And this is kind of a rough cut diamond. I'm just discovering some of these things. I'll have to hammer them out and carve them out as we keep progressing here. Once again, the trajectory that we participate in with Christ in this life as far as experience is primarily that of the downward trajectory. Though while we participate in the cross in that way, it's with also what's going on at the same time is an imminent expectancy of glory, an expectation of glorification, of our glorious eschatological liberty, which Paul calls the glorious freedom of the sons of God. But beyond that, we do have some experiential participation in his resurrection as those who are possessing and laying hold of, in some meaningful measure, the life of the coming age. That laying hold of the life of the coming age, 1 Timothy 6.12 and 6.19, life that is life indeed, is by the Spirit and by the engrafted Word. I've said this for 40 years. I'll say it again tonight. Staying under the Word is imperative for disciples of Jesus Christ. Staying under the Word is imperative for disciples of Jesus Christ. John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And yet we find that the ones to whom he spoke, who had believed in him, opposed him. And we're going to be, I might hit that tomorrow night. I'm going to talk a little bit tomorrow night about the wrong perception of Paul with relationship to the Jews. In fact, a wrong perception that has prevailed about how Paul viewed the Jews and how John viewed the Jews, and they're both been accused of being anti-Semitic, which is so ridiculous, but we'll show you how ridiculous it is. Maybe I'll do that tomorrow night. It's kind of a straying from the path, but we'll, I'm sure we'll survive. So in 2 Corinthians 4.11, our carrying around with us the dying of Jesus, that's our participation in his dying, leads to the life of Jesus being manifested in some meaningful measure, even in our mortal bodies. But again, the accent falls on our participation, I look at it like this in my notes, in the downward trajectory, 
Now, Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that doesn't mean under the power of the evil flesh, but in the flesh, in the present mortal body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our primary participation in terms of experience is with the downward trajectory of Christ and with some hints of this upward trajectory. And we'll see, I think, if we go through Romans, I think we'll see this very clearly manifested. Because in, in Philippians 3.11, Paul speaks of striving to attain the unattainable in this life, which is called the ex-anastasis, the out-resurrection, the resurrection out from the dead. Not that I have attained. Paul recognized that in this life, we do have, we know the power of Christ's dying. We associate with his dying. And we'll only know a measure of the resurrection power. And that's why if you read Philippians 3, 10, and 11, you'll find that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and to be conformed to his dying, to be conformed to his death, that I might somehow attain to the ex anastasis or the resurrection out from the dead. What Paul is saying there, there's many things he's saying. But one of the things that Paul is saying here in Philippians 3.11, that he speaks of striving to attain the unattainable in this life, which is the total experience of bodily resurrection. And that's not going to be the case in our mortal bodies. We're not going to have the total experience of the bodily resurrection. Though Paul says, I press on. Not that I've attained. The assurance of salvation is demonstrated here in Galatians 4 when God, through Paul, says, Now you are a son, and as a son you are an heir, an inheritor of the kingdom of God. The distinctive blend of plural with singular that we've seen in both Galatians 3 and 4, which is also a blend of singular and plural found in the servant of Yahweh or the servant songs in Deutero-Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 to 55, and the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, highlights the identification of the Galatians with the Son, the Son, the heir of all things. John 3, 35, John 17, 2, as we've seen, Hebrews 1, 2, and Romans 8, 32, as well as 1 Corinthians 3.23 and Romans 4.13. God loved the world so much that he gave the world his son. God loves his son so much that he gave his son the world. God loves us so much that he gives us all things, having not spared his son. This is a work of grace. So, the son, The son that he speaks of here is the same son who, when all things are subjected to him, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 28, he will also be subjected to the father. All things being subjected to him, he reigns now, he is Lord of all now, he is invisibly Lord. That's not something you can verify by reading the news or watching the news, whether it's fake or real news. 
You can't find out that Jesus is Lord by that media. You find out that Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. And you experience that Jesus is Lord by Colossians 2.6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. For walking in him under his lordship is our present experience of reigning with him. There is no having of authority unless someone is under authority. This is the one lesson that young people should learn before they step out of their house into adulthood. You cannot have authority in life or on a job or in over your own attitudes and dispositions unless you are under authority first. And sometimes, well, I'll say almost all the time, we all have to go through the test of being under unfair authority. It's a test, but it turns us into proper servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The son here in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. God subjects everything to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. That's his enthronement. And Christ must reign until all things are placed under his feet. The last enemy being placed under his feet is death, when death has to cough up all its victims. But what happens after that is that the one to whom all things are subjected subjects himself along with all things, all created reality including history, which he has universally taken into himself in Colossians or in Ephesians 3.11. And he submits himself to the Father along with all the creation that he has redeemed so that God may be all in all. That's taking the eschatological ball and throwing it as far out as it goes. God all in all. It's the most sublime phrase. So Paul is not dealing here with salvation history, as it's called by theologians, per se, including Kosovan. Paul is not dealing here with what we would call salvation history, per se, even as we've realized that Paul is not dealing with justification by an individual's faith. If you're justified by your own faith or you're justified by your own works, both your faith and your works are the same filthy rags. We're justified, we're set right, we're given a justifying eternal life through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not through our personal, individual faith. So Paul is not dealing here and throughout all of his epistles with what theologians call salvation history per se, but with the entirety of humanity as a single monolith. All humanity went astray from God all at once and all together says Romans 3.12. All sinned when Adam sinned and keep falling short of the glory of God, a glory that we will one day have, eschatological freedom. Glory is our freedom. Freedom is the glory that we will one day enjoy. It's, a, it's called the glorious liberty of the children of God. Paul is dealing with all of humanity in a single monolith as a slave under enslavement to sin, death, the flesh, the law, and certain beings called principalities and powers. When Christ came and faithfulness came, that changed everything. It brought humanity into an entirely different state. 
in Christ. So, Paul is not dealing here with salvation history that unfolds progressively through history. He's dealing with the entirety of humanity as a single monolith, as he did in Romans 3.23 and 24. All sinned and keep falling short of the glory of God, being justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the whole of the human race. Romans 5.6, Romans 5.12 to 19, 1 Corinthians 15.22. He deals with the whole of humanity first under the law with its confinement and curse and then under grace as beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory, glory that can only be that of the only begotten son, full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we have all received even grace after grace, nothing but grace. Thank you, Pastor Brindle. You're right. So let's look at 4.3 of Galatians. Again, I'm just re-establishing the things that we've done here because eventually either myself or someone else is going to do a pretty thorough exegesis of Galatians and then perhaps Romans. That might be my next step after Better Call Paul, an introductory series that might be a little less than 100 messages. So it is with us, Paul says, when we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. That's ta stoikia, and that's, an, that's what I want to hit tonight. That's the second gear that I want to hit. What are the elements of this world that he's talking about, the elements of the cosmos? Ta, the Greek article ta, plural article. Stoikia. Ta stoikia, the elements, the constituents, we could say, of the world. To kosmu. Tastoikia to Kazmu. That's the elements of this age or of this world. What are they? Well, first of all, they are the powers to whom the Galatians, as well as all the rest of humanity, were enslaved before Christ came. Before Christ the liberator came. Before faithfulness made its debut on human history before faithfulness was apocalyptically revealed in Galatians 3.23, before Christ came. What are these elements specifically? They are sin itself as a power. Paul almost always in his hamartiology, which is the study of sin, he almost always uses the word hamartia in a singular way because he's speaking of it as a power. Not primarily as a moral failure or in plural moral failures, sins. In fact, when Paul speaks of sins, he speaks of what's already traditionally known. Christ came, Christ died for our sins. That's something that he inherited from tradition. Galatians 1 4a, 1 Corinthians 15 3. Christ died for our sins. What God gave to Paul as an insight is the next part of Galatians 1.4, to deliver us, to rescue us from this present evil age. And to rescue us from this present evil age means to rescue humanity 
and all of creation. There's a cosmic dimension to Paul's gospel. That's why we call it an apocalyptic gospel. It is a revelation of God's saving righteousness. God's justice is not punitive or retributive. It's rather creative. It's transformative. God confronts evil and judges evil by transforming evil into the supreme good. That's one of the most powerful declarations of Scripture that has hundreds of verses to support it. And I think we'll hit that again. We hit it already in Revelation quite a bit. When we were minors, M-I-N-O-R-S, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. That's sin, the flesh. The flesh, by Paul, is not the lower nature of man. The flesh is a supernatural or suprahuman power that has control over the human race until the human race receives the spirit, which is able to combat the flesh and overcome it. Infinitely more powerful is the spirit. So what are the elements of the cosmos? What are the stoichia to cosmu? First of all, they are powers, suprahuman, to whom the Galatians as well as all the rest of humanity were enslaved before Christ the liberator came, before faithfulness was apocalyptically revealed. What are these elements specifically? Once again, they are sin, the flesh, death, And even the Torah, the law given by Moses. Because, as Romans 8, 2 says, the law was weakened by the flesh. It was hijacked by sin and weakened by the flesh. So what the law could not do, God did in sending his son. There's divine mission one. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh of the man Christ Jesus. Our salvation is the result of a work of grace enacted by God in Christ, enacted by Christ in God for undeserving man. Therefore, salvation is a matter of unconditional grace. And when man starts putting conditions on it, man departs in apostasy from the living God with a, an evil heart unbelief I know that's a paradox to think your faith is what justified you is to depart from God with an evil heart of unbelief think about that it's Hebrews 3.12 for one thing now The term, the elements of the cosmos, which enslave itself, ta stoichia, to cosmo, is itself an apocalyptic term. Now, I'm going to define for you apocalyptic again. As Ernst Kosman observed, the present worldview, that, he wrote this in 1980, it's worse now, and I would say including the Christian worldview, Christian in quotes, air quotes, the worldview present worldview, including the Christian worldview, doesn't know what to do with Paul and his apocalyptic view of the gospel. They don't know how to handle it. Part of the reason for that, I think, is that the non-Christian worldview does not acknowledge God as creator. 
And the modern Christian worldview has been pervaded by a salvific individualism ever since especially certain elements of the Reformation and a rationalism that neither Paul nor the other writers of the New Testament scriptures held. There are certain notable features of the worldview that we call apocalyptic, and Paul had that worldview. So did the prophets. The prophets, without exception, were those through whom God spoke by their mouth of an an apocalyptic happening, which is called apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things. Who talked about that? God through every single prophet that he endorsed. All the prophets in Acts 3.21, without exception. So apocalyptic has to do with a revelation of God's cosmic saving righteousness. Again, in Psalm 22.31, we've discovered that righteousness is not so much first an attribute of God as it is an act of God. It's what he has done in Christ. And what Jesus Christ said, Tetelestai, at the end of that, what God has done in Christ. So, once again, there are certain notable features of the worldview called apocalyptic. They include, first, supernatural powers at odds. Supra, remember when we studied the Revelation, there was Babylon the Great. There was the beast, and they were at odds with the Lamb. And with the seven spirits of God and the throne and with the saints, there is, first of all, in apocalyptic, supranatural powers at odds. Secondly, in apocalyptic, there is a dramatic change of universal conditions. We certainly found that in the apocalypse of John. Behold, I heard from the throne a voice said, look, I am making all things new, a change of universal conditions. And thirdly, there's a change of eons or ages. And all of this is encapsulated in the gospel, especially what may be called Paul's gospel, that which Paul called my gospel. The false gospel predicts a final judgment, but Paul's gospel predicts a final judgment through which we will be judged through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's not retribution. That's infinite benevolence. Paul's gospel is apocalyptic in that it has to do with all three of these features. The supernatural powers at odds, for example, include the flesh against the spirit. In Galatians 5.17, Paul's gospel is about a dramatic change of universal conditions. A certain condition that prevailed in Adam all the way to Christ. A condition that is universally changed since Christ. We've known that from Romans 5, 12 to 21 and 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 49. So Paul's gospel is about a dramatic change of universal conditions, as can be seen also from Romans 5 and Romans 8, as well as throughout all of Galatians and other of his epistles. His soteriology or study of salvation, rooted as it is in Christology, has a cosmic dimension. Romans 8, 19, all creation is groaning. We could even say agonizingly screaming for liberation from slavery to corruption. And we too groan with 
this creation. Paul doesn't, Paul pays due respect to our earthly pilgrimage. We groan in this body. We suffer. We are joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him. Paul doesn't go into this ecstatic type of thing where there's a radical realized eschatology. And Paul saw, confronted that in 1 Corinthians. What did he say to them? I'm so glad to see that you're already enthroned, he said, already on thrones and ruling. He said, because, well, I'm a fool for Christ. I'm, I'm the court jester then. If you're on thrones, he was rebuking a radically realized eschatology, which is a danger for people to enter, including Tadalestai people to enter. Paul's gospel is about the breaking in of a new creation through the fidelity of Jesus Christ. A change of eons or ages is certainly a notable feature of the gospel of Paul because it involves the rescue of humanity and of creation at large from the present evil eon and the onset already, although not the consummation yet, of the new eon to which the minds of those who believe are to be conformed. That's another reason why we must stay under the word. I urge you, therefore, Brothers, siblings, by the mercies of God, mercies that will be extended to all, 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 Romans 11.32, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And be not conformed to this age, but rather be transformed by the renovation or renewal of your thinking. That only happens under the word. That only happens by the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. That only happens in the spirit. This requires a radical conversion of epistemology, epistemological perspective that can only be brought about by the spirit and by staying under the word, which Paul calls a form of doctrine to which we have been handed over. Whether you know it or not, you've been handed over to a form of doctrine which has to do with the work of grace in Romans 6.17. Being committed to that word, does God require obedience? Yes, he does. Continue in my word, Jesus said, then you are my disciples. Now, here's what I want to make clear before we leave tonight. The supernatural powers at odds with God and his son and spirit are the enslaving elements of the cosmos, Paul deals with these just below the passage we're dealing with. So turn there to Galatians 4.8. I'll just summarize. Paul reminds them that all the while they were minors with the status of slaves, as opposed to being sons and heirs, they were enslaved, duluo, to beings who by nature are not gods. Paul is referring, of course, painfully reminding them to their former idolatry as pagans before they became graced pagans. That's what I refer to myself as, a graced pagan. A pagan for whom God has worked a work of grace. Thank you, Pastor Brendel. Not thank you, Pastor Nameless. I do remember his name. 
Oh, do I. And I wish the best for him and pray that God, if he's still alive, pray that God blesses him greatly and elevates him and gives him this insight. I pray for him for that. For the spirit. But then he says this. We're going to deal with the spirit in a moment. Once these grace pagans in Galatia were enslaved to beings, he says, who were not gods. And Paul said, you're in danger of becoming enslaved the same way again. Look at 4.9. He chides them here pretty severely. But now that you know God. Oh, but that's not really the issue. The real issue is that God knows you. Or rather, you are known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and bankrupt elements? Now he's calling the elements the Torah and other things that are impotent to give life or to make rectification, as we learn from Galatians 3.21. Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You know what he's saying? Why here? This is the question I asked today, and I came up against this. I said, why are the same elements that once were described as having a supernatural power, why are they now called weak and bankrupt? The same stoicheia. The reason for that is the graced pagans of Galatia, these, to the, for them, these elements became weak and bankrupt when they received the spirit at the report of Messiah's faithfulness. The reason they believed when they received the Spirit is because the Spirit is the Spirit of faith. For the Spirit whom they received is infinitely more powerful than the flesh that once controlled them and the demons who once ruled over them and their life's decisions. It's like what happens today. Modern slaves to horoscopes, tarot cards, tea leaves. It's kind of like what they were into. It's astonishing that having been liberated from slavery to supernatural elements which have been stripped of their power for these graced pagans, that now they would go back under that slavery. You say, well, they're not going back to their pagan worship. No, they're going to the Torah, which brings about the same results. Here's the shocker. To do that, what they're doing, what they're in danger of doing, is to invest those broken powers with power over them again. It is, as Paul describes it later, a submitting again to a yoke of slavery in 5.1b. And that's exactly what they were doing by going to the Torah and making it the means of their justification which it never was intended to be. And Judaism never purported that to be the purpose of Torah. Not true Judaism, only this fringe cult headed by certain teachers under the auspices of certain false brothers in Jerusalem, as we know from this study of Galatians. Now listen carefully. There is no difference, Paul is saying, between being obedient to their old observances in pagan worship with its demonic attachments and their being under the Torah as if the Torah could justify them and give them citizenship in the Israel of God. And so, as he later says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. 
And these works of the flesh, by which no one has inheritance in the kingdom of God, are produced just as much by people under Torah than by pagans in idolatry. That's Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now let's put our vehicle in reverse for a little bit and close. Galatians 4, 3b. When we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That means that we were minors once is referring to the whole of humanity, not just the Galatians. He is referring to the whole of humanity. When we, the whole of humanity, were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. Sin, death, the flesh, and Torah, because it's been taken over by the flesh and by sin. The strength of sin is in the law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In order to redeem, that's deliver and buy back those under the power of the law, which is all of humanity. Because those under the law are those under the power of the law, which is, simply means that they are under the elements of the cosmos, including the Torah, the law. That's Gentiles and Jews. In order that we, that's the human race, would receive the full privilege of legal heirs which is otherwise known as the adoption as sons, which is an act of God. Now, as you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son. There's divine mission too. Into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. When did Jesus cry out, Abba, Father? In the Garden of Gethsemane, under the most difficult duress. And so when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son is, this, is in us crying, Abba, Father, the implication is that we are being participants experientially in his downward trajectory. It has been given to us not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So this even more colorfully connotes our participation with Jesus' downward trajectory. He cried out, Abba, in his time of agony in Gethsemane. The spirit of Jesus also cries out, Abba, Father, as we do in him, in our co-suffering with Jesus. In my deepest sorrows and deepest difficulties, I have cried out simply, Father, Abba, Father. In verse 7, so that you, singular, are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, you are also an heir by God's act of adoption. No longer in the status of a slave, but of a son. So as such, you are an heir through God, or by God's act of adoption of you as a son. Why, Paul says, and that's the whole plea of Galatians. Why, why, why would you want to regress into the status of a slave again? This is Paul's passionate plea. But he's not done with them, and he's not done with us by a long shot. Father, thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll take what has been taught tonight in a kind of a difficult move forward in doctrine. 
and make these things clear, make them powerful. Make us recognize, Father, and make us realize that whether we know you well or not, we are known by you, and that's our assurance. We are known by you means we are elected by you, and we know our election. And as those who are known by God, we know that we are sons. We know that we have assurance of salvation. And we know that we are grafted into the sufferings of Christ in this age of messianic woes. But we also have an unusual anticipation of eschatological glory, imminent eschatological glory. For our lives are hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall appear with him in glory. And that glory is eschatological freedom, perfect freedom. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity.